Well, last week, if you remember, uh, Pastor, in his great, great series that he's been doing on 1 Corinthians, now Californians, he summarized all of chapter 8 through 11.1. He went through, and uh, if you remember, he made the point that chapter 8 especially is dealing with giving up our rights for a weaker brother, giving up our rights that we might have, things that we might be allowed to do in our Christian freedoms for the sake of a weaker brother, a younger Christian who might not, might not uh, be allowed by their conscience to do some things. They might be uh, still backing away from some things that were part of their sinful life, and they might see a mature believer doing something that's not sinful for them, but that might cause them to stumble. Chapter 8, as he went through, uh, he gave kind of a running summary that was, that was very helpful to get the, the whole picture, because he was correct. He said, 8-1 through 11-1 is one idea, and, and it really is. I'm speaking on the end of chapter 10, but let me, let me remind us of where we are at with, this, uh, with these, these couple chapters. In 8, he talks about two specific things. He talked about meat sacrificed to idols. Now again, quick reminder, uh, people would present their offerings at these pagan temples. Some of the meat would be put on the altar. Some of it would go to the priest. Some of it would be given back to the people who presented it. The priests got so much meat that they were able to sell some of it back into the market. And so that was one thing that he talked about. Another part that Paul mentions here in chapter 8 is actually eating in the temple feast or the idol feast. And what that was is in the temple, there would be uh, kind of a, a big pavilion that people would come and they would celebrate. Well, on the side of that pavilion, there would be these little dining rooms, these little restaurants, essentially. Probably the best place to get a steak in all of the town. And so he dealt with some of that. He said, some of you might know that because this meat really is nothing, it's sacrificed to a false god, it really doesn't matter, you might be free to eat it, but at the same time, if you're going into these temples, eating there, the people there are thinking that that is part of their worship to the idols. So he talks about that in chapter 8. And I was just thinking, it, it's a good thing we don't have that in our society today. It's a good thing that, uh, that we don't tithe in meat anymore, right? I mean, the FDA would just have a heyday with this. If some of you were farmers and you brought in a, a slaughtered, um, some ground beef or something, and came in and as the, the offering bucket's being passed around, you're dropping your ground beef in there, we are just not equipped to handle that. Please don't do it. Sell it. Use the money. Tithe off that. We would, be, we would much appreciate that. But the rule there is that, don't, that we're not to ruin a weaker brother's faith. We're not to use our liberty in such a way to ruin a weaker brother's faith. And then in chapter 9, Paul gives this, uh, this lengthy exhortation, I guess you'd say, explanation of how he has done this. Paul wasn't the teacher who came and said a lot of things that he didn't live up to. Paul was not the false teacher that he's going to deal with at other places to the Corinthians who told them a lot but did very little of what he said. Paul, throughout chapter 9, goes through and makes the case that he has done this for them. He has given up the rights that he had for the sake of them. He said, it worked for you. I came and I did this for you. I didn't take any money when I was here preaching to you. I came to you. I wanted to give to you. In fact, I worked on my own, providing for myself, even though God commands I should have the right to get, get paid by the people I'm serving. He goes, when I came here, none of you knew that. None of you were mature. So I gave up that right. I worked hard. Probably stayed up late. Probably was tired so that he could preach the gospel without any hindrance on it. Let me read to you... Uh, Verses 19 through 23 from chapter 9. 
Paul says this, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, also the Jews, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. For a New Testament believer is not held to the Jewish restrictions, the Old Testament. But, he says, so as to win those uh, under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. He clarifies there. He goes, I'm not bound to those old Jewish traditions, those Old Testament commandments. He goes, but there are some things that I have to live by. There is a law that I have to obey. There are some things that Christ has said that the apostles have taught that, that I do need to obey. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so long as he didn't have to sin doing it, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Can I emphasize the gospel, the reason he did it? He saw the power in the gospel and he wanted to get that out. That was his heart. That was what he wanted to do. In chapter 10, we see at the beginning there in uh, 1 through 13, there is the example of Israel. Paul goes through and he talks about Israel. He says, don't, don't forget Israel. Remember Israel as they were brought out of Egypt? They stumbled. They fell into idolatry. See, Israel had this belief that their close proximity to God, meaning that they got to follow around this pillar of this cloud, pillar of fire at night, cloud by the day. God directed them, took them exactly where he wanted them to go. He had just led them out of Egypt. And they had this false belief that their close proximity to God meant that they were incapable of stumbling, meant that they couldn't fall into temptation, that they would not give into idolatry. As pastor said last week, it was on a freedom march that they fell captive. On a freedom march. As he was talking about freedom, he said, as they were just being freed from Egypt, as they're going through the desert, it was this freedom march that they fell into idolatry. Which is why he says in chapter 10, so if you, um, chapter 10, verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He wants to remind them, remember Israel. Corinthians, think about Israel. You've heard these stories. They fell into idolatry, even though they had a visible representation of God right there. They still fell into idolatry. I think what he's trying to say there is, you might have this freedom, but as we're talking about giving up freedom for the sake of a weaker brother, don't forget, you too might be susceptible to this. And if you think you're a strong brother, pride comes before a fall. If you think you're a mature believer, be careful. Satan likes to use that. He likes to trip up those who don't think they have anything to worry about. And then 10, 14 through 22 it uses the understanding of communion, a Christian understanding of communion, that when we take communion, when I drink the cup, when I have the piece of bread, that I am participating in the body and blood of Christ. That's how we as Christians understand it. When I drink the cup, when I take the bread, I'm participating in the body and blood of Christ. He uses that understanding in a Christian sense to apply to these idol feasts, the ones that were happening specifically in the temple. This isn't talking about the meat that was sold in the market. These are specifically to the ones in the temple. And he says, because communion is a way that we participate in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, those feasts that happen at the temple, that's a participation in the worship of demons, ultimately. 
And so in one sense, he does completely and strictly prohibit Christians from being part of those feasts, being part of the ones that, that everyone knew. There was no question about it that that was idolatrous worship. Now, some might have thought that there was a, a strong Christian who was able to say, well, what's that idol? It's a, it's a rock. Some guy found that, dragged it over here with a donkey, chiseled it away to make it look kind of like a person, and now he worships it? That's silly. It's the best steak in town. I'm going to come in. I'm going to have the idol feast. They can all worship. I'm going to enjoy the steak, and it'll be good. Paul's actually saying, no, you should not be involved in that. The same way that communion is a participation in the body and blood of Christ, eating those idol feasts at the temple is a participation in the worship of demons. So he does strictly prohibit that. Verse 22, he says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, when you do something, when you give yourself into something that is idolatrous, you're trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? I don't want to do that. I don't want to be, be uh, standing before God one day and have him say, what about that time that you gave yourself into idolatry? Well, what was that about? You say I'm your first love and you gave yourself to idolatry? I don't want to be in that place, do you? I, I would think not. Are we stronger than he? It's easy for us to get an opinion, especially for those of us who have a lot of knowledge, who have a lot of freedom. It's easy for us to get this opinion. I can do whatever. God says, be careful. When it involves idolatry, be careful. So that brings us up to chapter 10, verse 23. That's what I'm going to be preaching on today. So let me read the passage for us real quick, 23 through 11.1. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So I want to look at that. What does that mean? He gives this, uh, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What does it mean in our lives as modern-day Christians living in a place where there's no meat sacrificed to idols? What does it mean to live intentionally for the glory of God? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So going back, starting in verse... 23. He says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Do we remember this from chapter 6? If you don't remember that, flip back real quick. Chapter 6, he opens the exact same way, almost. Verse 12, not opens chapter 6. Chapter 6, 12, everything is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In chapter 6, he's using a quote, probably that the Corinthians had told him in this letter. They said, well, uh, 
everything's, everything's permissible. We're allowed to do anything, right? We can do whatever we want. We've got this freedom in Christ. We can do whatever. It might have been a saying in Corinth. It might have been a slogan that they live by. Everything is permissible. It doesn't matter. We can do it. If you want to do it, come to Corinth. Kind of reminds me of the, uh, the commercial I see on TV. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Commercial that is paid for by the Bureau of Tourism, by the Visitors Bureau of Vegas. They want it to be known as a place that whatever happens there, it stays there. You can do whatever you want there. When you're tired of being restricted by life, by your spouse, by your friends and your family, come to Vegas, enjoy it all. Isn't that what it's saying? That reminds me of this this statement here. Everything is permissible. But in 10, he says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Pastor touched on this idea last week. If you remember the seven E's, the way that the things that we do, how we live our life, is it expedient? Is it going to help evangelism? Is it going to exalt God? Not everything is constructive. Think just for a second. In your life, could you say that everything that you do is constructive? If you have to look at your week, if you have to look at the ways you spend your weekend, maybe, could you say that everything is constructive? It might be. It might be that, that the way you spend your weekend is to refresh, to get strength back, to invest in your family, all good things. But just think, in your terms, in your opinion, is everything in your life constructive if you're a believer? No one should seek his own good, but the good of others. I believe that was kind of a summary of everything that we've heard so far from chapter 8, verse 1. I believe that's a good summary of everything that pastor said last week. Nobody should seek their own good, but the good of others. He's going to expand on that just a little bit more now, so let's, let's look at that and see. Verse 25, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. He's actually giving them permission here, permission to buy. This is the meat market. This isn't the, uh, the temple idol feast going on at the temple. This is in, from the meat market, okay? He says, eat anything there and don't even ask the question. Don't ask where it's from. You see, the Jews were known for having this attitude, the Jews in Corinth, that they would go into the meat market, they would, they would question everything. Picture yourself as a, uh, a Corinthian butcher. You've got your, uh, your table out here, your meat display, and uh, every time a Jew comes to buy some food for you, they're asking, well, where did this come from? Can you give me proof? Do you have written documentation that this didn't come from an idol's temple? I'm not going to be part of an idol's temple. Can you make sure this did? He goes, you don't need to worry about that. Paul is trying to free up his readers. He says, I don't want you to even ask the question. Go to the meat market, buy some meat. Perfect. Great. You don't need to see a certificate of authenticity on where it came from. You don't need to to probe and to to appear as this this whiny, super picky person. Because that's not what it's about. Galatians 5.1 says that for freedom Christ has set us free. Go to the meat market, buy your meat, Corinthians. You have that freedom. Doesn't even matter. Doesn't matter where it came from. He's made the case. If it was sacrificed to an idol, it really doesn't affect the actual meat. He goes, don't raise any questions on conscience' sake. Now, if I'm, if I'm thinking about me going to a meat market in Corinth at this time, I might raise some questions about some of the meat there, sitting out in a hot, open meat market. But it wouldn't be for conscience' sake. It'd be for whether or not I was going to be sick if I ate it. I'd, I'd want to get the freshest, you know, the best quality. 
but I wouldn't need to worry about that. That's what Paul is saying. You're free. Don't even worry about that. You don't need to stress over these little details. And then he gives a reason for it. 26, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He's quoting Psalm 24.1. He says it's all God's. Everything that we have belongs to God. You've probably heard the Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the sheep on thousands of hills. Everything in the Lord, everything in the earth belongs to God ultimately. Right? Right. Everything belongs to God ultimately. It's not as if Satan has broken into the universe title company, stolen some of the deeds to some of the property on this earth, scratched out the name of the one true living God and replaced it with his own name. I ask, is the earth the Lord's and everything in it? Is Las Vegas the Lord's and everything in it? Is New Orleans the Lord and everything in it the Lord's? Is New York City the Lord's and everything in it? It is. It belongs to him. Ultimately, it belongs to him. Now, in the Bible, we see Satan is called the ruler of this world. What does that mean? It means his name is on the lease, but his name is not on the title. God's name is still on the title. One day, God will reclaim that which is his. He will bring it all back. He's allowed Satan to rule for a little while, but ultimately, when he says it's time, he can pull that contract back and take it back. Amen? Amen. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So he's making the case. That's why it's okay to eat this meat. It all belongs to God. He's more powerful. He's superior. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. The earth is the Lord's, everything in it. You're free to do this, Corinthians. He says, it's okay. Go for it. Don't even worry about where it came from. If it looks good, buy it, take it home, have dinner. Praise the Lord. And then in 27, he brings in something that I believe is a little bit different than what we've heard thus far from 8.1 up till now. He says, if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. There it is. Galatians 5.1 again. For freedom we've been set free. He says, you're invited to a meal by an unbeliever, presumably in their home, not at the temple, in their home. You're invited by the unbeliever and you want to go? Go! Galatians 5.1, you have that freedom, amen? Go, you have that freedom. You want to? You want to go? You want to hang out with them? Do it. Didn't Jesus eat with sinners? Didn't Jesus eat with tax collectors? Didn't Jesus have a conversation with a woman at a well with no one else around who had a pretty sketchy past? Our, our modern uh, understanding of church, our modern understanding of ministry would, would probably not allow a pastor to do that. You're probably not going to see too many pastors these days, and I think that's wise. Late at night on a corner where there's a scantily clad woman. It's not safe. Jesus could do it. He was all-powerful. He, uh, he wasn't going to sin. You probably wouldn't see it today, but Jesus did that. He fellowshiped with sinners. Not in the same way a believer can fellowship with another believer, but he ate with them. He was there with them. He interacted with them. Some Christians think that, uh, that the right way to live on this earth is to build protected communities 
either real or imagined, in which all my neighbors are Christian, everyone I ever see in my daily life is a Christian, I never have to interact with an unbeliever. That's not the way Jesus did it. I hope you recognize that. I hope you recognize that that is a bad way to live your life. I hope you recognize that that is a waste of your life. If all you want to do ever is be with believers. I'm not saying it's bad. It's great. I love when I get to fellowship with a believer and we get to encourage each other in the Lord. It's great. There's nothing like it. Many of you probably have uh, maybe one or two good friends who you can talk to, who maybe you don't even get to talk to them much, maybe a brother or a sister, and, and whenever you talk to them, you're encouraged in the Lord. And anytime you get to spend time together, it's, it's the best day that you've ever had because of the fellowship you have. That's great. What I'm talking about is isolation, never being around unbelievers. So he says, go, eat with these unbelievers. You have permission to do that. You have that freedom. Again, he says, don't even raise the question. Uh, before I say yes to your invitation, can you tell me what you'll be serving and where it came from, please? You see, uh, he goes, no, 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 don't worry about that. He doesn't want Christians to be these uh, ultra-rejectionist, nothing, uh, stay, he goes, ah, it's not my heart. Go, eat. If it's not brought up, great, enjoy, have fun. But, verse 28, but... Here comes a parameter. He gave us permission, but here's the parameter. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. He says, so change in situation now. You're at this, uh, this meal. They've invited you over. The unbeliever is there. There are obviously unbelievers present. And somebody says, we don't know who this somebody is. This somebody might be a believer, a weak brother. It might be an unbeliever. It might even be the, be the person who invited you over. We don't know. It, it, it's, there's a good chance that it's a weak believer, but it really doesn't matter because what we know is that an unbeliever is present. Do you see that? An unbeliever is there. An unbeliever invited you over. We know that there is an unbeliever present. He says, if the... Uh, Excuse me. If anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, do not eat. At that point, he goes, there's a change in how you should live out your freedom. There's a change in how you should live out your freedom around unbelievers. All of chapter 8 was talking about how to give up your rights around a weaker brother. Now he's saying when there's an unbeliever present, when there's people who don't even claim to know Christ, and they see you, and they see the things that you are condoning, he's talking to mature believers here. He says, you might have to give up that right. You might be allowed, mature believer, to do something. You wouldn't do it around an immature believer, well, maybe you shouldn't do it around a non-believer, too. Before, he talked about the weaker brother, and now he's talking about unbelievers. Why? What, what does this matter? What does it change? Is it any different? I think it might be. The world, for some reason, I don't know how they do this, but they have some opinions about what a Christian should and should not do. Have you experienced this? Have you ever been told how you as a Christian should be living your life by an unbeliever? Yes. 
I don't know how they know some of these things, but they know them. A big one for me, and I confess this to my shame, dating unbelievers as an immature believer. I don't know how, but they knew it was wrong for me to do it. Are you sure you're supposed to be dating me? I don't believe in the God you believe in. Uh, oh, uh, well, uh, missionary dating, um, oh. They know sometimes. They, they have opinions about things Christians shouldn't be doing. Some of them might be ridiculous. Some of them might make sense. I used to have a very, very wrong attitude. Let me tell you about this attitude I used to have. I used to think that for the unbelievers in my life who I wanted to reach, if I could show them that I was free to do many of the same things that they were free to do or that they did in their sin, that it would ease their transition to come to the Lord. It was the idea that if uh, I was around people and uh, there was something that they were doing that they were probably doing to an extent that was sinful or it was an idol in their life, but my heart was that I wanted to show them, hey, I can do that too. Our lives can actually look pretty similar. I've just got this guy named Jesus. I was trying to say, man, our lives line up a lot. They're, they're actually pretty similar. You just got to add some Jesus and it'll be all good. And I was dead wrong with that. Why do we have a church filled with people that call themselves Christians and have never turned from their sin? It's because of immature believers like I was. It's because of immature believers who aren't out there saying you need to repent, you need to turn to the Lord, you need to believe in Him, and as you come to believe in Him, we'll know that it's a true belief because you're going to give up these things in your life that are sinful, and you're going to come to Him and you're going to say you want Him more than anything. That's not how I used to do it. I used to say, you can keep all this stuff, just, just add a little Jesus. I was advocating easy believism, I was not advocating repentance. In a society that has no moral compass, doesn't someone need to be calling them to repentance as they turn to Christ? Aren't we tired of seeing a church that is filled with people, ourselves included sometimes, that have not turned away from their sin to embrace to trust in Christ? As a youth pastor, it breaks my heart to see how many of these children, how many come through and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And I say, how did that affect the party that you were smoking weed at this Friday night? Well, I told everyone, man, God's good. <laughs> Bro, he loves you. Jesus. Oh. How does that affect the way you treat people at school? Oh, man. I drop F-bombs. I curse at them. And then say, you pagan, don't you realize you need Jesus? It breaks my heart when I see all these people who say that they are followers of Christ but have never turned to Him, have never repented, have never given their lives to Him. And if I'm being real honest with you, I'm probably the reason why there's so much of that. Because I had this attitude that if I could show an unbeliever how many freedoms I was able to do that were just like the things they did, that that would ease their transition into, the, into accepting Christ. I was dead wrong. We are called to preach repentance and belief. We are called to show them a God who wants to be their first. He does not want to be an addition. He wants to be their everything. A God who has been that for me. A God who is not willing to share me. A God who is jealous over my devotion to Him. That is the Christ we are to preach. That is the Christ that saves I heard this week, if you take 
the moral teacher, the prophet, out of any other religion, and you keep all of their teachings, it wouldn't change much. For Buddhism, it wouldn't change much. If you have all the teachings of the Buddha, take Buddha out of the picture. Really won't change the religion. For Islam, you take Muhammad, take him out of the picture, but leave all of his teachings. It really is not going to change that much. One of the ways we know Christianity is true is because if you take Jesus out of Christianity, we are left with nothing. There's some teachings, there's some moral commandments, but we're left with nothing because our faith is dependent upon a Savior who sacrificed Himself so that we would turn away from the junk in our life that had us restricted, that had us trapped, that we would give that up as we pursue Him, and that we would get granted the Holy Spirit who would help us to live that out. That's the Jesus that I know. If you take him out of the picture, I have nothing left. So why do we use our freedom before unbelievers in such a way that they don't think they need to change anything? All we're saying is you need to be in a pew on Sunday morning. Your life is cool. It can stay the same, but you just need to be in a pew on Sunday morning. What about Jesus? What about the call to give up everything to turn to Him? Isn't that the way that it should be? I believe here Paul is trying to show that when an unbelieving world thinks a Christian shouldn't do something, that might just be the conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. Romans 2 says the law is written on the hearts and minds of men. People who have never read the Bible, people who have never heard the teachings of Christ, they know what's right and wrong, most of it. Give or take a couple things. The law is written on their heart. Maybe when they see something and they say, I didn't think a Christian was supposed to do that. Maybe that's proof that the Spirit is trying to get a hold of them. Just because someone's convicted doesn't mean that they're saved. But maybe that's the Spirit's way of trying to get a hold of them. Not to bask in my shame, but if I can again share one more bad example from my life as a hopes to illustrate this point, I'd be willing to do that for the sake of the gospel. I worked at a, uh, a truck accessories store, one of the, the biggest in the country. We sold lift kits, mud tires, things like that. Working around a bunch of pagan guys for a year and a half, my vocabulary changed a little bit. I'm sure some of you have experienced this. When work gets tough, when you hear words from everyone else, you start using those words. To my shame, I had let my vocabulary slip quite a bit as I was working there. One day I was in a debate with a guy who was a Mormon. It wasn't about anything important, it wasn't about anything religious. People knew I was a Christian, people knew he was a Mormon. We were talking about something, joking about it, probably let a few foul words slip out. And one of the other guys that I worked with looked at us and he goes, that's some pretty colorful language for the two Bible thumpers. Ooh. Ooh. Have you ever felt that, that sinking feeling in your stomach that every part of your testimony, everything you've ever wanted to be before somebody, you've ruined? From something as petty as word choice? Oh, that's heartbreaking. 
If you felt that, you, you go home and you fall on your face and you pray and you say, Lord, forgive me. Don't ever let me do that again. Draw me back to you. I want to live for you. It breaks your heart. He says something very interesting. He asks two rhetorical questions, starting in 29b and 30. He says, For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Now, considering that this just followed Paul's advice to give up the freedom at the point that it's been made known that this food was offered to an idol, it becomes very tricky to interpret. Maybe that's why pastor let me do this passage. He wanted to see how I'd handle something. There's two different views on this. The first is that, the, that uh, those two rhetorical questions apply directly to 28 and 29a. How that would look, what that would then mean, is that it's saying, why should my conscience be determined by another's conscience? If it applies that way, it's saying, why should my conscience, what's right or wrong for me, be determined by a weaker brother, another person's conscience? To which case we would all say, well, it shouldn't. It should be determined by the Word of God. It should be determined by the conviction of the Spirit. I think a better way to look at that, which this is the way that the Revised Standard Bible puts it, is they put parentheses around 28 and all the way through 29a. These two questions then apply back to 27, where he says, eat Eat whatever's served without raising questions. Parentheses, skip down. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Well, it shouldn't. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, if I'm thankful to God, He's provided the food, why would I be judged for that? Well, you shouldn't. Either way you look at it, whichever way you see those two rhetorical questions apply, it does not change what it's trying to say. So that the point that an unbelieving world sees something and they don't think that a Christian should be doing it, back off for the sake of your testimony. Give up those rights. How would this apply to us? If we're to give up some of the rights that we have in an unbelieving world, so that they see us living out our lives for Christ, so that they might have some things, right or wrong, that they think a Christian shouldn't do, how should a mature believer apply that? How about this? How do you spend your money or God's money? He's put it in your hands. You have the right to do with it what you want. Some of you, He's put a lot more of it in your hands than others. What do your neighbors think about your spending choices knowing that you're a Christian? Do they see that you're using your money primarily for selfish gain? Or do they see that you're using your money in such a way as to care for them? Maybe you helped pay for their wheelchair when their medical insurance lapsed. Maybe you helped pay their mortgage when they lost their job. I don't know. I'm not saying there's a command on how you should use your money, but think about this. If we're called to give up our freedom before an unbelieving world, you're free to use the money that God has put into your possession however you want. We see that in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They're told, you sold your house, you had this money, you could use it however you wanted. God has given us that freedom. The way you use your freedom, though, what is that going to say to an unbelieving world? Are they going to see that your treasure is in Christ? 
Or are they going to see that you have the same treasures that they have? I'm not saying it's wrong to have stuff. Hear me out. I drive a car. I live in a house. I am extremely blessed. But am I trying to show the people in my life who don't know Christ that I use my money to pursue all the same things as them? Or am I trying to show them that what God has given me, I want to use for the sake of reaching them, for the sake of encouraging and building up others? Think about it. This isn't a command. It's an option for a mature believer. How do you use your money? How else might this apply? What else might you need to, to give up for the sake of your testimony to an unbeliever? My guess is that there would be a lot of people in here who, uh, who have a glass of wine every now and then, maybe two glasses of wine, hopefully not 20 glasses of wine. My guess is that time to time you even do that with an unbeliever. I'm not saying that's wrong, but think about it like this. You don't know what their background is. You don't know what their association is. You don't know whether or not, you might know if they struggle with alcoholism, but you might not know whether or not it's been a problem in their family. Sure, Paul told Timothy, have a little wine when you're having stomach problems. It's in the Bible. But does that mean it's okay to do the same thing with an unbeliever that they use in a very idolatrous, very sinful way? I'm not sure. I'm not answering that question for you. I've known there have been a lot of people in my life who were unbelievers who condoned a lot of casual drinking but were also drunks and alcoholics. To a drunk or an alcoholic, how is it going to look if I, as a Christian, am having a glass of wine, a couple glasses of wine with them? I don't know. This is a question I'm putting in your court. You answer it. You put it in your own terms, in your own life. What are the things that you condone as a believer that might be hindering someone else from coming to the Lord? because they might be doing the same thing and think that there's no need for God in their life. There is no need for Christ because your life is no different from theirs. What are those things? We're being called here in the sake of the gospel, for the sake of getting the blessed word of Jesus Christ out. You as mature believers might need to give some things up in the presence of an unbeliever so that your testimony can be stronger. Again, this is written to mature Christians. I don't know how this applies in your life. I don't know the people that you work with. I don't know your neighbors. I don't know what's going on in their life. But I'll tell you this. If they see no difference in your life and theirs other than that you get up earlier on Sunday morning, they will not see a need for Jesus. Do they see you treasure Him above everything else? You're free to do what you want. You've got a lot of freedoms in Christ. Like Pastor said, get in the Bible study. You'll be able to do a bunch more things. Praise the Lord. But when you're around a weak, uh, weak brother or when you're around an unbeliever, what might you forsake so that the gospel can be embraced? I'm not saying we need to be legalists. I'm not saying that our unbelieving neighbors, that our co-workers should see us as staunch rejectionists who don't do anything. I'm not saying that, but I am saying use spiritual guidance. Pray about it. Ask the Lord, what are the things in my life that might hinder my testimony with an unbeliever? Things that might even be okay for me to do as a mature Christian. And would you be willing to give those up if he tells you?
See, if you are immature and you want to live out your freedom as much as possible, I've got a piece of advice for you. If you're an immature believer, you're new to the faith, I'm not trying to call you out. I'm just saying, if you want to enjoy all of your freedoms as much as you possibly can, don't tell anyone you're a Christian. Serious. You want to enjoy all your Christian liberties? Don't tell anyone you're a Christian. You'll never have to give anything up. But if you want to significantly impact those around you and in the process find a deeper joy in Christ, if you want to do that, be prepared to give up your freedoms. At the end of your life, would you rather say, I did as much as I was allowed to do as often as I was allowed to do it? Or would you rather at the end of your life say, you know what, there was some times where I gave up some things that I was allowed to do. I gave up some things because I didn't know how that would look to an unbelieving world, but I was blessed, blessed with the privilege of seeing people come to know Him. I was blessed with the privilege of seeing people turn from their sinful lives because they saw something different in me. might not have been wrong for me to do whatever it was, but I gave it up so that I could minister to them because they had a problem with it so that they would turn to Christ, and I've been blessed to see that. Which would you rather say? Let me read the last couple verses of this passage. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, which would mean unbelievers, or the church of God, weak believers or strong. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Why would you give up things you were free to do? To see people saved, just like Paul said in chapter 9, for the sake of the gospel. Become all things to all men. Why? So that by all means I might save some. I might see the hand of God reach down and grab hold of somebody who had previously rejected him. Somebody whose life was filled with idolatry and immorality and sexual immorality. Why would you give up the things that you are allowed to do so that you can see others come to know him? The shorter Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Has anyone ever heard that? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you've ever read John Piper, he's got to be one of the best Christian authors around today. He's probably got 30, 35 books out. John Piper, not Don Piper, the guy who wrote... 90 minutes in heaven. John Piper. He's developed this concept. It's a slight change of the Westminster Catechism. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Not glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Well, how do you enjoy Christ? How do you enjoy the Lord? Well, certainly, when you see Him at work in your life, when you see the change He's brought about, you enjoy Him. When you see that He is able to take your cares and you can cast all your cares on Him, you enjoy Him. There's many things where me and my relationship vertically with Christ, my relationship with God, there's things about that that I enjoy. But I want to challenge you to see something else out of this. Living intentionally for the glory of God and trying to enjoy Him forever means that you are living for the sake of the salvation and edification of others. 
Look at the passage. It says it right there. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Surely the, the, uh, the words, do all for the glory of God, apply to the whole Christian life, and they should. Everything we should do, the decisions that I make, should not just be based on my own interest, but I should think, how can I glorify God in this situation? But in this context, specifically what we're talking about here, is how we live around unbelievers. If you want to enjoy God, one of the ways that you're going to do that, you're going to worship, you're going to see what He's done for you, you're going to rejoice in the cross, but you're also going to test out the Spirit's power. I don't mean put God to the test. I mean you are going to live your life in a Spirit-led way in which you are out there reaching people. If the Spirit's given us power for the sake of ministry, are we using it? Are we using it? You see, if you gave me a Ferrari as a commute vehicle, if you gave me some ridiculously fast car that had hundreds of horsepower and said, here, you can use this on traffic in your, your daily commute, well, that's, that's great. I'm sure a couple people will look and go, wow, probably cause a few fender benders. But it's an entirely different thing than if you give me a Ferrari and you take me to Infineon Raceway and open it up the track and say, have fun. Test it out. See how much power this baby's got. It's a totally different thing. If I am using a Ferrari as a commute vehicle in traffic, I am not getting to experience the power of it. I am not going to enjoy it as much. If I am taking that same car, I put it on a racetrack, and I am flooring that thing, hitting the red line, shifting through the gears, diving into corners, I am going to be going, <laughs> I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to get everything I can out of it. Are you using the power that the Spirit gives to believers in that way? Are you trying to enjoy God in that way? Are you trying to get out there in the lives of others and say, I believe that I have the Spirit. The Bible says it's given to me. I've got the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to go use this stuff. I'm going to go reach my friends. I'm going to reach my neighbors, even when I'm a little afraid to do it. Because I believe that there's a spiritual power, the Holy Spirit, behind my actions, and that if I am emboldened in the Spirit, we're going to have a blast. It's going to be a ride. I don't know that everyone that I share the gospel with is going to accept Christ, but I know that no one is going to accept Christ unless they hear the gospel. And I know that someone needs to tell them, and I want to be the one who tells them, even if that means that I've got to give up some things every now and then, some things that I have the right to do so that I can say, Christ is my treasure. I live for His glory, trying to show you how good He is. What is the motivation behind what you do every day? Are you seeking the glory of God by sharing Christ and living out the gospel before unbelievers? The Erdman's Pulpit Commentary says, The commonest thing may be done in a high Christian spirit. The greatest deed may spring from a low and selfish motive. There might be a lot of reasons why you do the things that you do in your life. They might be good things, but are you doing them for the glory of God? And in this passage, the glory of God is indivisibly linked unseparably linked to sharing Christ with others, to seeing the salvation of others. I get tired at the end of my day, just like you. I work in a church, and believe it or not, pastors, when they go home, they're tired. There's stressors, there's things that come. 
I want and need to spend time with my family, just like you. We all do. That's a good thing. I have projects to be done around my house. I've got weeds that need to be pulled. I've got messes that need to be cleaned up, just like all of you. But if at the end of my life, I look back and I realize that I spent all my time building my kingdom, meaning I spent all my time trying to get my life just right, get my life just in order, do all the things I wanted to do, and I spent very little time building the kingdom of Christ, I will be horrified. I tell my wife sometimes, because I get caught up in the busyness of life, I get stressed out, I come home and I don't want to do anything but have a nice meal, sit down on the couch, hang out with my family, fall asleep at about 9 o'clock. I could do that every single day sometimes, I'm so tired, and never talk to my neighbors who don't know Christ, never impact my friends. But I tell my wife when I realize I'm in one of those, those habits where I, I just do that every day where I come home and I'm not doing anything to live intentionally for the glory of God by getting the name of Christ out there. I tell my wife, if nothing changes, I am going to die miserable. If I am not using the power the Spirit's given me to get out there, even if that means giving up some of my freedoms, like coming home and chilling, maybe watching a couple hours of TV. If I don't give some of those up so that I can have more time to impact people, I tell my wife, I will be miserable. I don't want to die that way. I don't want to look back in 30, 40, 50 years. Go, gosh, I spent a lot of time taking care of me. I want to see that I put the Spirit's power to work, that I was out there in the lives of others, serving Him. A mature Christian devotes themselves to a life of spirit-emboldened, Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming service and love. You will never find a mature Christian whose life is focused on himself. It's possible to read all the best Christian books, memorize a bunch of scripture, and never even approach spiritual maturity because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Outward love, love to others, sharing the gospel. Living intentionally for the glory of God means you constantly are seeking how to live even at the sake of your own self-sacrifice so that others will want to come to Him and want to grow because of your testimony. Are you living for self-gratification or for edification of others, the building up of the church and the reaching of those who don't know him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for what you've given us in Christ. We praise you for the blessing it is to call ourselves children of the Most High. We ask that you would let us be thankful for all that you've given us, for all the freedoms, but we ask that when the time comes, that when an unbelieving world needs to see something different, that we would give up some of what we are free to do in order to have a stronger testimony, in order to reach them. Lord, I pray that you would use our lives to reach those who don't know you. I pray that you would not let us be focused on ourselves and what we're allowed to do, that we might not even be thinking about what we're allowed to do, but that the thoughts that would consume our hearts and our minds as followers of Jesus is how can I, at whatever expense, get the gospel out? 
We praise you for the cross. We praise you for what it means for us. We ask that you would empower us through the Spirit, that you would embolden us to take you to the places that you have not yet been, to those who don't yet know you. We thank you for your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.